The sermon text this morning is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, uh, page 977 in the ESV. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Our God, that song that we just sang is true. You reign. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and you reign over them all. You have no rival. You have no close second. You are God over all, and you reign, and we worship you for that. And you reign over our lives, Lord. You reign over our salvation. The devil, the world, the flesh had us in its grips. But by the mercy of God in Christ, you freed us because you reign over all things, including sin and death. And so we praise you for your reigning power, Lord. And we pray that you would make it real to us now. As we open up the word together, Father, please live in this room this morning. Live in our hearts this morning. Show us that you're alive this morning. Show us that these aren't just things about which we talk at church But these are living realities every day of every month and every month of every year and for all eternity. It's true that our God is alive and He will reign forever. So show that to us this morning, Lord. Open up our eyes that we might see. Oh Lord, I looked out at the morning sky this morning with the moon shining so bright and several stars also shining bright and I worshipped You for being the God who created it all. So just open our eyes, I pray to who you are. And I pray that you would use this sermon as a means by which you will unify the church, by which you will maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I give myself to you now. We give ourselves to you now. We give this time to you now. Please, Lord Jesus, come and teach us. It's in your great and gracious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Isn't the Lord good? Just looked out at that morning sky. I love the crisp air this time of year. Just stood out there walking my dog, enjoying Jesus, looking at that beautiful blue sky, rejoicing in the fact that He's alive and He's my God and He's your God. So rejoice today, friends. God is God and He's on your side. Amen. That's great news. If God's on your side, who can be against you? The Apostle Paul, as you know, has spent three chapters in Ephesians trying to do just what I prayed trying to open our eyes to the glory of what God has done in Christ and give us a heart for these things and give us affections for these things and give us proper thinking about these things. And now he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to live your life in a manner that makes what God did in Christ look absolutely glorious. And then he goes on for three chapters to just draw that picture out for us, what that looks like, 
to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And the first five things he mentions are these. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and a passion for the unity of the church. And as I said last week, the first four things in that list, humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, are all driving toward the subject of unity. And the reason I said that is this. Paul takes up the subject of unity in verse 3 and carries that all the way to verse 16. And so since he spends so much time on the subject of unity, I know that in verses 1 and 2, that's what he's driving at. And also, if you just think about this with me, a person who is arrogant, who is harsh, who is impatient, and who is judgmental, not forbearing at all, that person tends to breed division, don't they? Arrogant people never unite other people. But humble, gentle, patient, forbearing people have a tendency to unite others. And so those first four traits are absolute prerequisites for pursuing the unity of the church. They don't guarantee unity, but they certainly are absolute prerequisites for it. Now, the thing is that in and of ourselves, we don't have the ability to be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing people, do we? I don't know about you, but in my life, I tend toward just the opposite. I tend in my flesh toward arrogance, harshness, impatience, and towards judgmentalness. For different of us, that will look different, but the truth is, in our flesh, we will all tend toward the negative of these things and not the positives. And therefore, our only hope for possessing these traits, and therefore, our only hope for pursuing unity, is to be reconciled with God in Christ, and to be growing and growing and growing in our communion with Him. We simply must be a people who know what it means to grow in our ability to see the glory of God and to commune with that God. Because in doing that, we become more like Him. And in becoming more like Him, we're able to pursue the things that He would have us pursue. In our flesh, it's possible for us to pursue a kind of unity for a season, but over time, our passion and our power will fade away and we will fail. And so, what I want to talk with you about this morning is three things. First of all, I want to talk about the basis for pursuing the unity of the church. What is the the ground on which we stand? Second of all, I want to talk about maintaining our passion for the unity of the church, especially in difficult times when we're in the midst of struggles with other believers. And number three, I want to talk about having power for pursuing the unity of the church. So let's begin, begin by talking about the bases of the unity of the church. I have five things to share this morning. There's a lot more things that we could say, but here are five things that come out of Ephesians 4 as I see it. Number one, the unity of the church is the unity of the Spirit. If you look there with me at verse 3, Paul writes, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. And what that means is, that the unity we're pursuing as Christian people was born of the Holy Spirit. And it's possessed, it's owned by the Holy Spirit. And that unity, therefore, is greatly valuable to the Holy Spirit. He has a great passion for the unity of the church, much more so than we do. Now, what that means then is the unity we are pursuing as Christian people is as valuable as the Spirit of God Himself is, because this unity belongs to Him. And so, please listen to me. 
when you're in the heat of battle for unity and you're struggling with another brother or sister, don't forget that the value of what you're struggling for is the being and the purposes of the Holy Spirit. It's not about you and it's not about that other person. It's about the value of the Holy Spirit. So remember that and don't give up. Keep struggling. Keep striving. Because the thing after which you're striving is very valuable. Very valuable. It's the unity of the Spirit. Number two, what makes the unity of the church possible is the peace that Christ bought on the cross. Or if I could put that another way, the bonding agent of our unity is the peace that Christ bought on the cross. And the reason I say that is because when Paul says we ought to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that word bond literally means a a link or a joint. Those of you who build machines or do construction, you put all kinds of things together with links and joints. That's what this word is. Or sometimes it's used for physical bodies. And when it is, it means a, a ligament or a muscle or a tendon or a sinew, something that holds things together. And so what this text is saying is that when it comes to the unity of the church, the bonding agent, the glue for the unity, is the very peace that Jesus Christ bought on the cross for us. And I asked myself the question this week, what peace is that exactly, Paul? And I just looked back another chapter, and if you look with me at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, we find out exactly what peace it is that he's talking about. For he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace. He is our peace. Who has made us both one, Gentiles and Jews, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Before Jesus Christ gave himself up on the cross, true, spiritual, God-pleasing unity was completely impossible. There was no basis for it. It necessitated the work of Christ on the cross, making peace between us all and reconciling us to God. And now that Jesus Christ has made peace for each for us with each other and with God, unity is not only possible, but if we will walk in His ways and submit ourselves to His will, unity is probable if we will follow Him and His ways. Our pursuit of unity is simply the pursuit to make concrete what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Our practical pursuit of unity is a pursuit to make visible the effects of what happened on the cross that day. So when two brothers, two sisters, or a group of Christians unite together, they're making visible the implications of what Christ did on that cross. So if you're in the midst of a battle for unity, remember that the bonding agent for that unity is what Christ did on the cross. And I ask you, what is more important in all of history than what Christ did on that cross? What is more decisive in all of history than what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross? And what He accomplished on that cross becomes a basis, a foundation, a ground for you to keep pursuing unity. So don't give up. Number three, our pursuit of unity is just a small part 
of a very massive work of God to unite all things in Christ. And I get this from a couple places, but look with me back one more chapter at chapter 1, starting in verse 7. We'll read three verses here together. In Him that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the plan. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sin destroys and divides every time. God in Jesus Christ is seeking to restore and reunite. Sin obliterates things. It's like a bomb that goes off and stuff just scatters in a thousand pieces. And God in Christ is seeking to unite all things in Christ, putting back together what sin has exploded only with a glory much greater than before. And that glory will be the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me put it to you this way. If you are a Christian person, if you consider yourself a believer in Jesus and you have life in Him, then your Father is God. And God has invited you to call Him your Father. Your Father has a family business. And the family business is called the kingdom of God. And the purpose of that business is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So the pursuit of peace, you know what it is? It is working in the family business. We're working together with God to unite everything in Christ. And I pray with all of my heart that we will be a kind of people who have a passion for our Father's business. And we will have such deep reasons and such deep passion to pursue unity and pursue it and pursue it because that's what our Father is doing. I remember when I was a little boy, whatever my father did, that's what I wanted to do. If he was working, I wanted to work. We had restaurants when I was growing up and I just wanted to follow my daddy around and do everything he did in those restaurants and I did. And it's just like that with us in the Christian walk. Let's follow our father around and do what he's doing. And what he is doing, the big picture of what he's doing, is uniting all things in Christ. So let our practical pursuit of unity be a display of the work of our Father. Number four, our pursuit of unity is based on the fact that as Christian people, we have all of the most important things in creation in common. We share more in common than you could possibly imagine. Turn back with me to chapter 4, if you would, please. And let's just read once more verses 4, 5, and 6. There Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's seven specific things that God has said that we all have in common. And friends, we just need to get this in our minds. As Christian people, we share the most significant, valuable things in all of creation in common. And that should become for us a massive basis by which we pursue unity with one another. 
To pursue the unity of the church is simply to pursue the value of what God has done for each and all of us in Christ. And to give up too quick and to give up into disunity is to impugn what God has done for us in Christ. And so all I'm saying in this point is let's value what God has done in giving us all of these things in common. One Spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all. And let's let our commonness in Christ be more valuable to us than anything and therefore continue to pursue unity and not give up. Number five, and finally, our pursuit of unity is based on the value that God places on every Christian person. Our pursuit of unity is essentially based on the value of God Himself. But secondarily, it is based on the value that God Himself has placed on every single Christian person. A person who is a son of God in Christ is eminently valuable. God has chosen that person, forgiven that person, redeemed that person, marked that person with the Holy Spirit, raised him or her up with Christ, seated him or her with Christ in the heavenly places. This person is very valuable. And we ought, therefore, to approach each other as Christians with a kind of sense of awe and reverence and respect and thankfulness to God for what He has done in each and every one of us. When we look at other Christians, even those that we don't like very much, we should look at them and assess their value based on what God has done for them and not on what we think about them because that's where their rightful value comes from. Who can imagine with me that I right now am looking at many people who are being fashioned into a dwelling place for God? Who can imagine what that means? God Himself has prepared you as the place in which He will dwell. And if in the days of old, people should have approached the physical temple in Jerusalem with awe and with reverence, how much more should we approach one another, the living temple of God, with a sense of awe and a sense of reverence? We ought to view each other, friends, like rare jewels, that are very valuable in the sight of God and therefore approach each other with respect and with a proper sense of awe. We ought to treat one another with special care, with deference, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance because of what God has done for us in Christ. So please, if there's someone especially that maybe you don't even like them, let's be honest with each other. There's some Christians we don't even like. Just remember to continue assessing their value based on God's view of them and not on your view of them. It will really help you in the heat of the battle. There are many more things we could say, but together these things make up five bases for the unity of the church. And I promise you, friends, if you'll note these things, or we'll have the PowerPoint up on the website within a day, if you'll go back and look at these things and really meditate on them, Seriously think about them. They will become a strong foundation for you to stand on, especially in the heat of the battle of pursuing unity. To the extent that we grasp what God has done in Christ for the church, we will have a deep and a deepening passion for the unity of the church. To the extent that we see how God views the unity of the church, we will have a passion to protect what Christ died for and what He lives for. We will not be quick to divide. We will be very quick, though, to unite in any way that we possibly can. 
Now, let me talk with you for a few minutes about maintaining a passion for unity. How do we keep the embers of our hearts on fire, especially when things get difficult? Where does our passion come from? I come to the subject of unity from verse 3 there, if you can look quickly. Paul says that we ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's that word eager that I'm after right now. To be eager means to do our very best at something. It means to make every effort that we can possibly make and leave nothing, nothing out. It means to try as hard as we can and just flat out to have passion, to have passion for this. So be eager, have passion to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Paul is not calling us to think about the unity of the church as a peripheral part of what it means for us to walk in Christ. I think what Paul is trying to get at in verses 3 to 16 in Ephesians is he's trying to move the subject of the unity of the church into the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. I think he wants us to see how eminently valuable this is to God and how eminently valuable it ought to be to us. He wants us to have a great passion for this and to be a people who are marked by this. As people get to know about this church, what they ought to say about this church is that's a church who cares about the unity of the church. They're not perfect. In all kinds of ways, they're not perfect. But that's a church who really cares about the unity of the church. We should be marked by that. We should be a unity-pursuing people. Now, where does our passion for unity come from? Where does Where's the well from which we draw? I think that it comes again as I've said earlier already, from seeing the vision of what God has done in Christ. And that's why Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are so important. We are quick, especially in our culture, to want to get to the practical stuff. But the more theological, abstract stuff in the first part of Ephesians is crucial to our way of life because that becomes the well from which we draw to keep pursuing the unity of the church. It comes from contemplating these things and from valuing them. It comes from being overwhelmed with the beauty and the glory and the purposes of what God is doing in Christ. Because to the extent that we are in awe of what God is doing, we will have passion to overcome our practical problems with pursuing the unity of the church. To the extent that we have a deepening vision of what God is doing in Christ, even when another believer has wounded us, we will not allow that to keep us from pursuing what Christ has died for. And we will not be quick to give up. Rather, we will strive to be about our Father's business, just following our Father around and doing what He's doing. And one of the main things He's doing is pursuing the unity of the church. So, let's be real here for a second. What do you do when you come across a believer who is just, frankly, irritating to you or annoying to you or gets on your last nerve? And I don't mean just one day. I mean over time. You've tried and just this kind of thing is happening. What do you do? Where do you go? I think what you do is you keep looking to the surpassing value of what God has done in Christ and let that be a source of power for you to pursue a relationship with this person. What you do is you don't give up and you keep on trying to love that other person, even learn to like that other person. What you do is you keep on trying to display the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And and frankly, friends, you just don't quit. You don't quit. I remember, this is years ago now, I preached some sermon 
about something. I don't remember what it was. And after church, a woman came up to me and she was in tears and shared her heart with me and she asked me, what do I do about this situation? And I began to offer her some things that I thought she could do to deal with her situation. And no matter what I said to her, she just said, I've tried that already, it didn't work. I've tried that already, it didn't work. I've tried that already, it didn't work. I tried that already, it didn't work. And it reminded me of when Jesus asked the guy, he said, do you want to be healed? Has that ever struck you as a funny question? A guy sitting there all sick and lame, and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? It's a good question, because I'll be honest with you, there's some of us who don't want to be healed. There's times when I have not wanted to be healed, and this woman did not want to be healed. And so what I did, I just kind of got the point that no matter what I said, she was going to say, I've tried that already, it didn't work. So I just looked her right in the eyes and I said, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. God has given you these things that I've laid out for you. He's given them for you as your manner of healing. So don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And I don't know what happened to her, but I hope with all my heart that she didn't give up. And what do you do when you're dealing with a person that's difficult? Don't give up, friends. Don't give up. The value of what you're pursuing is God. It's based in God. So let that be your source of strength and don't give up. And then take comfort in a verse like this. Romans 12, 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. The reason I love this verse so much is because it's so real. It seems to me to acknowledge that there's going to be times when we're trying to pursue peace with someone and it's just not possible. At the end of the day, we just can't get it done. And I like that because it's just real. And that has comforted me many times. But the other thing I love about this verse is that it puts the emphasis where it ought to be. Namely on me. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, as, as far as it depends not on the other person, but as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Do everything that is within your power, in your heart, and in the situation to pursue peace. Because you know as well as I do, we can't control the other person, right? There's nothing you can do to control that person's pursuit of God and that person's valuing of you as a human being, that person's attitude, actions, words. There's nothing you can do about that. But by the grace of God in Christ, you have control over yourself. You can pursue communion with God. You can protect your heart in the way that you're thinking about that other person. You can guard your mouth and the words that you say. You can guard, you can control the actions that you take to pursue unity. So, as far as it depends on you, do everything in your power to pursue your Father's business. The things that are so valuable to God, keep on pursuing them and do not give up, even when you're dealing with a very difficult person. And I think that this is somehow how how it works. I think that the secret to being able to continue pursuing peace with someone that's difficult in your lives is to learn to be filled with all the fullness of God in Christ. Because when we look to God as our only source of satisfaction, and we're genuinely not looking to that other person to fill us up, or to unity to fill us up, then we just become more able in a practical way, we're just more able to lay our lives down for their good. When we are filled with the fullness of God in Christ, friends, I'm, I'm not saying this as an exaggeration, I mean it. We can endure anything. Anything. If you are filled with the fullness of God in Christ, you could even 
endure torturous death. Kevin on the men's retreat this week brought up uh, Richard Wormbrandt, who had been through some tremendous, tremendously horrible torture. And he described some of that for us. And I just thought, how else in the world does a man endure that with joy except by being filled with all the fullness of God? So if a man can endure that, then we can endure anything in Christ. And the reason we can endure is because we're not looking to other people to fill us up, but we're looking to God to fill us up. And I really think there's the, an exact correlation here. To the extent that I am filled with God and looking to Him as my resource, I am able to lay my life down for other people. Just genuinely lay my life down because God is my treasure. Now, I'm not saying that that's simple. I'm not saying that that's easy. I'm not saying that there's not pain involved. I'm not saying there's not real grief involved. I'm not saying any of that. But I am saying with all the passion that I can muster in my heart, that if you will look to God to meet your needs, you will find an eternal source of passion for pursuing unity with other brothers and sisters. Finally, let me talk with you just for a few more minutes about the power for unity. Where do we get the power to keep on keeping on? Where do we get the power to overcome the devil's schemes and actually succeed at realizing the unity of the church? The power to pursue the unity of the church comes from learning to depend not on ourselves, but on God who raises dead people. Our power to pursue unity comes from learning to depend not on ourselves, but on God who has the power to raise the dead. In the first chapter of Ephesians, in verses 19 and 20 in specific, Paul says that the very power that brought Christ out of the grave is working at us toward us who believe. The same exact power that raised Christ from the dead and healed His wounds after being flogged and hung on a cross and caused Him to be able to set aside His burial clothing and it moved the stone away and Christ walked out of the grave. That same power is working in us right this moment who believe. That's amazing, isn't it? To think that the power of God who created the sky that I was taking wonder in this morning is at work toward us who believe. Listen with me. This will be up on the PowerPoint as well to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul said of himself and some companions, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now let's just take a second and let that sink in. Paul and his companions were in a situation where they literally thought they were going to lose their lives. I doubt very much that any of us has been in a struggle, or at least only few of us have been in a struggle, so serious for the unity of the church that we thought we were going to lose our lives. We were literally going to be killed. But that's where Paul was. He was pursuing evangelism. He was pursuing trying to get this new ragtag church to come together and be unified. And his life was literally on the line. And here's how he concluded. But that was to make our, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul saw his predicament as an opportunity to see that God is great and He should be trusted in and we should not trust in ourselves. Our God is able to do so much more than we can imagine, friends. There's not a person in this room who has grasped what God is able to do. 
It's like a two-year-old child who is totally impressed that his dad can lift up two gallons of milk at one time, way up over his head. And that child just looks and says, my daddy is so strong, look what he can do. And he can't even grasp that his dad can bench press hundreds of pounds. He has no idea how strong his father is. None at all. But this is all he knows. My daddy can lift up gallons of milk. And we're like that. We're like that two-year-old. We look to God and we're impressed with what He can do and we don't have even the capacity to understand what He can do. He is great beyond description. He is marvelous beyond words. And the great news is that in Christ, God is on our side. And if God is for us, friends, who can be against us? If God is for us, even when our passions for pursuing unity wax and wane, God's passion does not wane. And it becomes the place from which we can draw to keep our passion and our power up because our God is great. Satan is a vicious, evil being. And the Bible tells us that he wants to steal and kill and destroy. And those are not weak words, are they? Steal, kill, Destroy. He's a vicious being. Destruction is his middle name. And division is his aim. He is like a roaring lion prowling about the whole earth, seeking those of us whom he can devour. So don't underestimate his designs. Don't underestimate his power. But friends, even more than that, do not underestimate the defeat of Satan. He has been soundly defeated. The battle between the armies of Satan and the armies of the Lord is over. It's a done deal. We're living right now in a mop-up operation. The war is over. On the cross, Satan was decisively defeated. That was the moment in history where everything would be decided. And it was decided in our favor by the grace of God in Christ. Hallelujah! He has been defeated. So let's live in the victory that's ours in Christ and find in that victory the power to continue pursuing peace and unity with other brothers and sisters. Let us not give up this fight because of what Christ has done. Now let me close by just giving you five very quick things, practical ideas for what you can do as you pursue the unity of the church with other brothers and sisters. If you're not in a battle for unity right now, you will be eventually. So please note these things. Think about these things. Again, the PowerPoint will be available in a day or so. Five things. Number one, remember to meditate often on the goodness and power and purposes of the Lord. Now here's what I mean by this. When we get into difficult situations, I think that our tendency is to mull over and over and over the details of the situation rather than to mull over the power and purposes of God. I think we have a tendency to worry and to put the problem at the center of our affections rather than putting God and the solution at the center of our affections. We have a tendency to think too much about what's not possible instead of thinking about what is in God possible. So, when you're in the heat of the battle, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself to just meditate more and more and more on the glory and the purposes and the power of God. Try as hard as you can not to give in to the fleshly pattern of anxiety, but instead look to your Father. Number two, 
and this obviously follows out of number one, I would encourage you to pray and then pray and then pray some more. If there's ever a time in your life when you need to learn to pray without ceasing, it's when you're in the midst of a difficult situation. Because again, I think that we tend toward letting anxiety rule us rather than letting prayer rule us. And the Bible says in the midst of difficult situations not to do that. Let me read two texts to you. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Think about that for a second. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every single thing, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, or by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then the fighter verse for this week, 1 Peter 5, says, Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. The Bible doesn't tell us not to feel anxiety, but it tells us what to do when we do feel anxiety. And you have two choices. You can continue to worry or you can pray. Those are the choices. Worry or pray. I remember one time some years ago, it's about five, six years ago now, I was in the throes of a difficult situation, and for three or four days, I was just so stressed about it. One of those deals where I just had constant tightness in my stomach because I was just so stressed about what was happening. And I remember getting up one morning, and just literally the instant I woke up, I bolted out of bed and just said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm a Christian person. I'm a person who loves you. Why am I feeling this way? What, what's going on? I just can't live another day like this. Please help me. And I don't know if it was God speaking to me or if it just came into my mind, but what I heard in my spirit was, if you will actually pray, I will give you my peace. And what I realized is that for those three or four days I had been thinking about prayer, but I hadn't actually prayed. And so I got down on my knees that morning and I spent an hour, hour and a half just praying letting my burden go to God. And I'm telling you, I can testify, this verse is true. A peace from Jesus Christ came over me that totally changed the way I viewed the situation. The circumstances were identical, but my view on it was completely transformed. And I had a peace on me that just didn't make sense from a human point of view, because that's how God does it. If you will cast your anxieties upon Him, then the peace of God in Christ will guard your hearts and minds. So pray, friends. Don't Rely on your own power. Don't give in to anxiety, but pray and pray and pray. Number three, learn to correctly identify your enemy. You've heard Ephesians 6.12 before. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you are in the heat of a battle, continue reminding yourself that the person with whom you're struggling for unity is not the enemy. They're the goal. They're the goal. What we want is peace and unity in Christ with them. They are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And he is trying to divide you. Correctly identify your enemy. And as I said a week or two ago, one of my pastors used to say to me, when the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. 
And when the devil is trying to get you to divide with other brothers and sisters, you remind that old devil of his future and where he's going. His division is going to divide him from God eternally. And he will suffer for what he's trying to do. Live in the victory of Christ and remember who your enemy is. Plead with your father and fight against the devil. Pursue your brother. Pursue your sister. Don't let them become the enemy to you. Number four, if you do, by the way, I think Satan has won. What he's trying to do is to get you to think that person's your enemy. And to the extent that you do that, he's won. So don't let him win. Don't let him identify the enemy like that with you. Number four, spend most of your energy working on yourself and not on the other person. Not worrying about the other person's problems, their foibles. Don't try to fix the other person, but work hard to get the log out of your own eye. Work hard to ponder the question I asked last week that I told you I asked to myself in the midst of a difficult situation. What is it about me that can't handle this person? Jesus can handle them, and I'm supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus, so what's wrong with me that I can't handle this person? Spend your energy working on yourself. Ken Sandy likes to say, he's the guy who runs Peacemakers Ministries, and he likes to say that every conflict is actually an opportunity and I really think he's right about that. And one of the primary opportunities it presents is for us to work on the glorification of God in Christ by working on ourselves and shaping our hearts to be more like God. And then finally, number five, I said it to you again, and I said it to you earlier, and I want to say it to you again. Never give up. Never give up pursuing the unity of the church because it's that valuable. It's worth a life's worth of labor. Even if at the end of the day, you come to a place where you have to divide with another believer, and sometimes it just has to happen. Don't give up the hope that God could reconcile that situation in Christ. Don't stop praying that some way, somehow, God might reconcile that situation in Christ. Contemplate His power and do not give up. It may be, this would be sad, but it may be that some of us have to actually even die without having been able to reconcile with another brother or sister. Sometimes it happens that way, and it's sad, but it does happen. But let it never be said of us that we died and had given up. Let us never, ever give up the hope that God can raise the dead. And if He can raise the dead, He can reconcile a situation that seems totally impossible to us. God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. So because of His power and because of the surpassing glory of what He's trying to do in Christ to unite all things in heaven and earth in Him, do not give up. Keep being the glue that holds things together and pursue your brothers and sisters. We have not done this in the past, but this morning as I was preparing the sermon, what I thought I'd want to do to close is I've asked Aaron if he would come and just play through a song for us. We're not going to sing. We're just going to listen to him play. And I wanted to give you a few minutes just to sit with the Lord and have him speak into your life. Maybe there's a rebuke you need to hear from him this morning. Maybe there's comfort you need to hear from him this morning. Maybe there's some wisdom from him this morning. I don't know what he would give to you. But please, now, just for a few minutes, bow with me in prayer and let the Lord speak to you. And then I will come up and close us in a moment. Lord, we're so thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. We're so thankful that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins are now called sons and daughters of God. 
We're so thankful for all that you have done for us and for all that you're doing in the world and in the church and in the universe. We're so thankful that our Father has a business and he's invited us to work in that family business. And I pray, God, that you would use this message and whatever other means you decide to use to greatly increase our passion and our power to pursue the unity of the church. Lord, how I pray that you would make visible in this place the effects of the defeat of our enemy on the cross so many years ago. Lord, let us see with our eyes the purpose and the power of the cross. Let us see the value that you place on these things with our own eyes. And make us people, Father, who pursue these things with all of our hearts. Please strengthen each and every one of us and teach us not to give up. Teach us to look to you, our Father, as our eternal source of passion and power and filling. And teach us, Father, to love other believers with an incredible love. Give us eyes to see them in the way that you see them, Father. When you look at other believers, you see something. Help us to see what you see. And then, therefore, help us to do what you would have us do. We love you, Lord, for the word. We love you for this guidance. And now again, I pray, make it real in our lives. Make it concrete. Make it applicable. Glorify yourself in these things, we pray. In the great and gracious name of Jesus, amen. Would you please stand with me? I will give the benediction and we'll be dismissed. We've got Sunday school in about 25 minutes from now. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance over you and give you peace in Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen.